Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast. Not so weekly recently, he admits. Weekly, if you know what I mean, the other weekly. Uh, Indeed, I must issue a public apology for not recording this podcast uh, in recent times. I've just been so busy um, that uh, I just haven't had the time to do it. But I pledge that I'm going to start doing them regularly again from now on, a pledge which I hope will be more reliable than some of the pledges being made uh, in the current Conservative leadership contest. Uh, one of the reasons I've been busy is I've been uh, doing the live version of this, various shows and talks around the country and indeed around the Europe and in on one occasion, the United States recently. Uh, And there's another live show coming up on uh, July the 10th at King's Place. Uh, So do come along to that one. And of course, the Edinburgh Festival, the final two weeks of the festival, uh, every day from August the 12th to August the 24th. And there's so many different things that we can look at during those two weeks. I think the show will be different each day. There will be an unpredictability element to each show, as there is in British politics at the moment, which is totally unpredictable. Anyway, today, if it's all right with those of you who are kindly listening and returning, uh, having probably given up on me, I thought I would focus mainly on this Tory leadership contest and one specific element of the contest. It strikes me that what is so unusual about this leadership contest is the context in which it is taking place. Most leadership contests where a prime minister is being selected by the party, not at a general election, takes place in a pretty stable parliament where the incoming prime minister will have a big majority to do what he or she would like to do. Uh, When John Major was selected by his party in November 1990, he inherited a dream landslide majority from the 87 election. He could do more or less what he wanted, and to some extent he made use of the space. He abolished the poll tax, amongst other things, during that period in which he was a prime minister in that parliament. When Gordon Brown became prime minister in 2007, he too inherited a big majority in the House of Commons. So what those two said, Major and Brown, in their leadership contests, well, Brown didn't really have a contest, it was that silly one-man contest, but what they said during their campaigns almost certainly could be realised because they had these big majorities in the House of Commons. Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt are competing to be Prime Minister in a hung Parliament. And yet, Here is the bizarre twist. Brown and Major were quite cautious in what they pledged, even though they could do more or less what they wanted when they got into number 10. The opposite is happening now. Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt are making increasingly wild pledges. And yet when this contest is over, one of them, Boris Johnson almost certainly, will be Prime Minister in a hung parliament. No overall majority. And the key question to be asked of candidates in such a context should be this. How do you plan to lead in a hung parliament? Because the demands of leadership are wholly different to what they are when a prime minister enjoys a commanding majority. 
When a prime minister has a big majority, leadership can be glamorous. They are at the centre of a political stage where certainly in a parliamentary context, they can tend to win every vote that they hold. They can make a declaration and see it go through parliament with relative ease. Prime ministers who've led in hung parliaments rarely recover from the experience. It is utterly draining. They can lose votes. They have to be the master of every detail and see in that detail space for compromise to get votes through the House of Commons. They have to open up to other parties as well as keep their party happy. And this can be tough with relatively mundane policy areas. And this next Prime Minister will be trying to navigate Brexit in a hung parliament. That's the reality. But then let's go to the fantasy of the leadership contest. Both candidates pledging more or less to get Britain out of the EU by October the 31st. Both saying they will contemplate a no deal. Jeremy Hunt is in these days when ballot papers are being sent out to party members, opting for a strategy of almost out-manoeuvring Boris Johnson in his incredible pledges in relation to Europe and, uh, and other matters. One minute saying he's going to revisit the whole fox hunting ban, the next minute saying he won't, then saying he's going to keep civil servants at their desks over August uh, in order to prepare for no deal, and so on. And yet, when they get back to the reality of Parliament. It seems to me that this is a House of Commons where there is still a majority against no deal. Whenever there has been a vote specifically on no deal, that is the case. Now, some of Boris Johnson's supporters say, well, Parliament won't have any means to stop no deal from taking place. I wonder about that. There are certainly people who I've spoken to remain supporting or X remain supporting. It's quite hard to define who are remain supporting these days. But MPs who don't want no deal plan once again at some point in September or October to take executive control. And the Speaker will almost certainly facilitate that. It's up to MPs whether they take the opportunity from there, but I suspect they may well do so and may well vote in that context of executive control against a no deal. And the reason why I think that might well pass is that quite a few ministers now who have been part of a collective responsibility and therefore unable to collude with these so-called rebels uh, will be free to do so. They'll be on the back benches. They include, incidentally, the current Prime Minister and the current Chancellor. Philip Hammond has spoken often against No Deal, and Theresa May, more recently, has spelt out her concerns about No Deal. Uh, Rory Stewart, the star in many respects of the early phase of the leadership contest, Hi, I'm Rory. Come and join me in Kew Gardens and let's just have a talk. He has brought a new dimension to British politics. I call it psychedelic Toryism. There was one of his videos, a friend of mine filmed it, where he was saying, let's untap all the energy in Britain and all the love 
And we can achieve so much when we untap love. It reminded me of sort of John Lennon and Yoko Ono in the late 60s. But it was a, it was a very effective um, form of communication. But he has gone on the record against no deal. He, of course, is in the cabinet at the moment, but won't be because he said he won't serve under Boris Johnson and would not serve in a cabinet where no deal is being contemplated. So you have more figures, I suspect, willing to vote against no deal. I have no idea and indeed some doubts about whether they would vote against the government in a no-confidence motion. I think it will depend on the urgency of the context in which that took place. But on voting against no deal, I think they might well do so. And that means the numbers will probably, probably, on the Tory benches, be higher than they were in previous votes. So at the very least, we can say that while these two candidates sound increasingly macho in their assertion that they are willing to contemplate no deal, Parliament could well stop it. It's the same with quite a few of the other pledges they're making. I've heard enough Conservative MPs say they are against Boris Johnson's proposal to cut taxes for high earners to work on the assumption that if he were to bring that forward, and I doubt he will, it would be defeated in a budget. Remember, Philip Hammond was defeated in his budget when the government actually had a small majority. It was one of the early traumas of the May regime, which made her conclude that it was wise to call an early election and get her own working majority. That didn't go too well. And so what we are hearing at the moment from these candidates is wholly detached from the parliamentary arena when they return. Now, those who have contemplated the hell of leading in a hung parliament, some MPs, supporters of either of the candidates, have therefore concluded one possibility is that Boris Johnson, if it is him, probably will be, will call an early election to get a working majority so what are now fantasy pledges could indeed become reality in relation to Brexit and other matters. But think that one through. There's no doubt that Boris Johnson will get a honeymoon and the Conservatives, I suspect, in September will be well ahead in the polls. Every new Prime Minister gets a honeymoon of some sort, usually quite an intoxicating one. Theresa May, remember, 20 points ahead in the polls when she called her early election. Gordon Brown, similarly, when he contemplated an early election. By the way, in both cases, moving towards their doom, Theresa May in calling that early election, Gordon Brown in contemplating it and then not calling it. These are dangerous areas, early elections. Ask Ted Heath. Well, you can't because he's dead, but you know what I mean. He called one too and was out of Downing Street. But that's not the main reason why Boris Johnson should be wary of calling an early election, however tempting the fate of others who have done it, although he should bear that in mind. It is this, that if he were to call one in September, well ahead in the polls, it would be in effect a single issue election on giving the new prime minister permission to negotiate or not negotiate a no deal, to pull out with no deal. 
And that means the election would begin with several senior Tories saying, in effect, we are unable to campaign with you on this. You cannot have the likes of Rory Stewart and Philip Hammond, this unlikely rebel, but I call him our Che Guevara. You know, teenagers have posters of Philip Hammond on their bedroom walls as this great rebel against No Deal, pro-European teenagers anyway. How could they campaign for No Deal in an election campaign? So one of the opening themes of such an early election would be the rupture in the Conservative Party. It would also be the case, I think, that because Brexit had not then been delivered, that Farage would be compelled to field candidates in the Brexit party, which would take votes away from the Conservatives. So even though a route to liberation from the hell of a hung parliament is a very early election, calling it in September, holding it at the end of September or early October... It would be, I think, too risky to do. In other words, if I'm right about that, and predictions are treacherous, of course, Boris Johnson will have to navigate his version of Brexit through this hung parliament. And what is interesting about that is, although I suspect he hasn't reflected greatly on the nightmarish constraints of being a prime minister in a hung parliament, it's not glamorous. I think he regards the job partly as hugely glamorous, being Prime Minister for understandable reasons. It can be. But it's not in a hung parliament. It is just difficult. Look at what happened to Wilson, Callaghan, Major, May, when they navigated through hung parliaments. They've never, ever fully recovered from the experience. I think Johnson doesn't really want no deal. He's almost said as much. There's a million and one chance, million to one chance. I think he is working on the highly optimistic assumption that the EU will be worried enough by his threat of no deal to concede to him on the key issue of the Irish question and the backstop. I wonder about that partly because we know what the EU has been like when faced with a similar threat under Theresa May. It's easy now to look back and say, oh, May was never serious about no deal. She never wanted it. It was quite clear she never wanted it. Now, part of that statement is true. It's the case, evidently, that she never wanted it because she's made quite clear now she thinks it could lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom and all the rest of it. But the other part of that statement is not true. There was a point where it was far from clear. I remember speaking to Yvette Cooper about Theresa May for a Radio 4 series I was doing on Theresa May. And Yvette Cooper had said to Theresa May at one of those liaison committees where they question a Prime Minister, I've known you, Prime Minister, for 20 years and you will never contemplate no deal. And May gave that sort of steely gaze that she could sometimes do and didn't answer the question. And after that, Yvette Cooper formed the impression that May was indeed contemplating no deal. May became, in her language, tougher, in her determined uh, resolution to take Britain out by March the 31st, a statement iterated and reiterated again and again. 
And there were quite a few. There was quite a lot of talk about "Mm, maybe May's serious about no deal. And I remember speaking to political journalists who knew her well, and they would say, I wonder whether she would really take us out on no deal. And that, too, was being questioned in the European Union as well. Speaking to some of that lot, they were far from clear that May would not leave without a deal. Her language, no deal is better than a bad deal, her determination to get us out and all the rest of it, made some of them wonder that maybe she would take the UK out without a deal. And what was the EU's response? They didn't change a dot and comma of anything. So why they should when Boris Johnson threatens no deal is far from clear. But I think that is his strategic calculation. He, I think, aches for a deal almost as much as May did. Obviously a different one, but a deal. I think he aches too for the transitional period. So nothing much changes on November the 1st, but he can raise a glass because he's taken Britain out. He even made the mistake, like David Davis, these people are not masters of detail, that there would be a transitional period in the event of no deal, which of course there won't be. The transition accompanies May's deal. So I'm not sure this threat of no deal will greatly change the EU position. And what happens then? Well, we will find out soon enough. There is so many different routes that could be taken over the next few months. I think all we can say for now is that this autumn will be the most seismic politically of our lives. And in the end, several options remain. That the EU have had enough of us, you know, that Brexit party turning their back on the European Parliament and the anthem being played, the kind of uncertainty of what Britain will do under Boris Johnson, the unlikelihood that Boris would go to the October summit and ask for more time, say, to hold a referendum, in which point the time would be given a further delay. They Maybe they'll kick us out on October the 31st, and that is it. That's one possibility. Another is that, in the end, Parliament melts and accepts no deal under Boris Johnson. That, to me, seems less likely. Another thing that quite a lot of Boris's supporters are saying is that there will be a polished version of Theresa May's deal, the only one on the table. It's going to take quite some polishing for him to pull that one off. But that, too, seems to me a possibility, given that some Labour MPs now see themselves more as delegates of their constituents than persuaders to those constituents that departing the European Union may well hurt them. And so they might, with Labour support, get a polished, in inverted commas, version of her deal through. But I wonder what form the polish is going to take. And it will have to be pretty bright, sparkling polish for that ERG group of hardliner Brexiteers to back the polished version and for the DUP to do so as well. It could be that Boris Johnson gets it through with Labour support, but quite a big reaction from his currently devoted supporters from the ERG group. 
they aren't sentimental. I can't hear most of them, you know, Mark Francois saying, because it's Boris, yeah, 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 let's let's go for it. Or Jacob Rees-Mogg saying, I know I've regarded this deal as the greatest betrayal of 500 years of British history, but under Boris Johnson, it feels and looks very different, and therefore I will give it my full support. It's quite hard to hear these theological figures conceding in quite that way. We will know soon enough, but it's very, very hard to predict. One of the um, problems with the leadership contest, given the epic stakes, is the scrutiny that is going on. Remember, the ballot papers are going out pretty soon. The votes will take place pretty soon. And in a way, the only sort of big moment of national exposure was that BBC leaders debate with the then five candidates. And, um, you know, I've said before, you know, the BBC is not biased to the left or right or to remain or Brexit, whatever those various sides think, they emphatically are not. But there is a sort of constant bias against understanding, as John Burt said, and the, the, the shame about that debate. I I can't get worked up about the selection of the audience members, but I do get worked up that the audience members were selected at all. Because in one hour, with five candidates and a brilliant presenter, with about five or six topics being selected, most of the candidates had about a minute per topic. So the structure inevitably meant it was going to be a kind of shouting match and then bringing in the viewers back again to slag off the candidates in the sort of anti-politics mood of the moment meant that no light was shed anywhere at all. And it was the structure that was the problem, not bias of any other kind. But it does mean that scrutiny has been really limited on that sort of detailed forensic questioning. And as I say... The hustings are sometimes great, and Ian Dale has chaired them brilliantly and all the rest of it. But because party members don't really want to hear about the constraints of power in a hung parliament, they haven't really been challenged about how they plan to lead in a hung parliament in these hustings, because party members want to hear about the glories that will await them under either of these two candidates. And glory obviously largely means Brexit on October the 31st. So that has become problematic too, the scrutiny being really limited and detached from the political context. Meanwhile, as part of the sort of dark, circuitous nature of British politics at the moment, where the same themes recur, but as if for the first time, you know, will there be a referendum? We've been debating another one. We've been one way or another that comes up every now and again. Will there be an election? And at the moment, all the commentators who predicted that Corbyn would be a catastrophe in the 2017 election are now returning to that theme again. They do so without acknowledging that they were completely wrong in their analysis of the 2017 election, uh, were wrong when they hailed Change UK, the formation, as being a greatly significant event. They are right to, of course, I mean, the opinion poll ratings for the Labour Party are dire. And there are huge issues around Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. But it 
seems to me, apart from anything else, quite boring just to sort of say, oh, he's a disaster, which they have been saying since 2015 when the trajectory of Corbyn's leadership has been more complex than that with some considerable successes, including, in my view, that 2017 election result. His critics say he still lost, but he lost when an election was called suddenly by a prime minister 20 points ahead in the polls. And by depriving the Conservatives of her majority in that election, Corbyn has given these uh, liberal commentators still hope that their great cause remain could actually still happen. If May had won that big, uh, we'd have been out of the European Union by now. So he has had, in some respects, more impact as leader of the opposition than many leaders of the opposition in the recent past. So it seems to me that the analysis of Corbyn's failings are both more interesting and complicated than merely to point out it's a disaster, his high point has gone when they never acknowledged a high point in the first place and so on. Part of his problem, indeed the biggest part in my view, is his near invisibility at an epic moment of history. He's actually not a bad interviewee. He's this curious mix of uh, radical uh, sweeping convictions in some respects, but quite tonally emollient as an interviewee. But we never see him in any kind of interview situation. He's been clearly barred from doing any by his office. So he's an invisible leader, when the leader of the opposition at the moment should be a huge, near ubiquitous figure, framing arguments about no deal, which is is a new element to the Brexit equation. No deal was not part of the debate during the 2016 referendum. And so his failings are partly to do with an inability to frame arguments, to work out then how you develop the arguments to get wider appeal and to win in terms of the debate about things like no deal and other issues as well. Invisibility is not, I'm sure he works round the clock and I know he's not ill because I see him go running on a regular basis and it's a 5k plus run that he does but he needs to be at the moment everywhere or a leader of the opposition does and he's nowhere to be seen most of the time. He's clearly not a figure of strategic nimbleness and subtlety. And as a backbencher who never wanted to be a leader and never reflected on the skills required of leadership, he's not going to suddenly acquire them in his late 60s when the leadership suddenly descends on him. And so these are huge, huge issues. But the reason why Change UK failed, the reason why... Labour did better than expected in 2017. The complexities of Brexit, it's interesting. I hear some people say, oh, if only Yvette Cooper were leader now. And she has got many, many qualities. I'm a big admirer of hers. But she actually has not come out for Remain or a referendum as yet. She's been heavily involved in the process to try and stop this no-deal Brexit. But it just highlights how complicated the European issue is for any Labour leader. And while Tony Blair has been, in contrast to Corbyn, brilliant at framing arguments against Brexit, 
I bet if he were leader of the Labour Party, he would be in a somewhat different position to not being when you don't have to face an electorate or contemplate the consequences of appearing at least to defy a 2016 referendum. It's much easier to put the case in the way he does brilliantly. But with all those qualifications, there are huge issues. But I think in a way, his failings are more interesting than those who kick him in the teeth and have done for the last three years. It's becoming more urgent because this really is a historic junction to go back to this epic autumn that everybody will be living through. You're going to have a new prime minister on a honeymoon and it's going to require epic leadership from those that oppose whatever course that prime minister takes in relation to Brexit and many other things as well. So it's going to be an extraordinary time, utterly compelling. Have a holiday if you can, uh, but I uh, hope some of you, as I say, will be at Edinburgh, where I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival. That's my holiday, doing more of this, but on a stage. And as I say, I hope to see some of you on July the 10th at King's Place, an extra show put in, Tory leadership special, Brexit special. And as I said, my pledge is to do more of these podcasts more often, and I'm going to keep to it. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.